right, and welcome to End Credits. You're on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm your host, Adam A. Donaldson, and joining me today is... Tim Phillips. Tim is here, despite the weather, that we didn't have to leave our house to uh, endure. But uh, we, 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 know we what, actually we know shoot out this there. outside usually, we right? Shoot this outside, that's right, our outdoor studio. The winter, actually, Candace, I'm thinking about Candace now because Candace loves the winter weather, so she probably wouldn't mind it. She would probably um, be even more eager to record uh, than usual if we did this outside in the winter. Not so much the summer, but definitely the winter. That'd be wild. Then they find us frozen to death in a parking lot somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> like, like the end of The Shining, and then it's and then it's full circle because it was end credits after we were found frozen and we were at a New Year's party in 1921 or whatever. Anyway, yeah, that went that went on a on a, on a trail. Anyway, uh, end credits is a local movie show for local movie fans. We're here every Wednesday at 3 p.m to talk the latest in pop culture and re- and review the newest movies, which this week will be the new biographical drama After Sun, which you can now stream on most VOD platforms and maybe find it in your local art house or rep cinema if you're lucky. I don't think it's playing anywhere around here this week in The Princess, The Apollo, or The Bookshelf, but uh, it does keep popping up every now and then. Anyway, we're going to talk about in the back half of the show. We're in the first half, we're going to consider The Blacklist. Not that awful James Spader show that is somehow still on TV, but... Uh, I've never watched it. You don't like it, Adam? I it, The first season was fine. Um, quick, quick criticism of The Blacklist. All the FBI characters are dumb so that the James Spader character can seem smart. Okay. Uh that's <laughs> that was my that's my one sentence analysis of season one of the blacklist season i kind of gave up shortly thereafter anyway james Spader isn't worth that let's talk about the james real black he is good i'm not saying he's like not him. good i'm just saying the blacklist is deeply beneath him especially in season 75 or whatever they're in now okay, okay. speaking of the real blacklist <laughs> Um, it's this list of unproduced screenplays, uh, and an organization which is called the Blacklist puts together a list every year of the best ones. And in an effort, I guess, to promote them, um, a lot of these are from new writers, um, or writers who haven't had their big break yet. Uh, you know, if you're writing stuff. If you're kind of writing original material uh, on spec, as they say in the business, obviously you're probably not doing too much in the way of uh, writing, uh, working writing, I guess I should say. So it's considered a really great opportunity to discover new voices, new talent, um, unique stories. Uh, a lot of movies have come from the blacklist. Some of them have turned out pretty good, like uh, The Post, the Steven Spielberg movie about the Pentagon Papers. Uh, some of them turn out to be really, really bad, like The Passenger, which is the Chris Pratt, Jennifer Lawrence movie about um, uh, how how best to put it. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm not going to even go there. Um, but yeah, The Passengers was a stinker. And I think that's sort of what people think of, because if you go back and look at like past lists of of from the blacklist there are a lot of like really great movie projects that come off the blacklist but i think the 
bad projects stick out the more if you follow what i mean i think so i haven't gone through in depth like i'm assuming you did given what you just said there but um there were in the article i was looking at they mentioned some some really good films that mm. were but this is years and years of doing the blacklist like you said so mm-hmm. like jojo rabbit spotlight slumdog millionaire yeah but for for all of those there's probably like 10 to 20 stinkers like you were saying i can imagine and also these are like unproduced screenplays so these are like dream projects from the screenwriters mm-hmm. and what happens in hollywood with producers um casting agents you know they bring in other writers so there's probably been a lot of projects that titles have changed key aspects of the plot have changed if they have gotten produced so it's uh it's interesting like in in reading any screenplay on online it's just a blueprint for a movie that mm-hmm. if it's not produced you know it can be fun to read but it's not not the same as seeing the actual final final film and uh, i'm sure a lot of these have been mutated along the way oh for sure yeah. um to, to give people uh, an idea the, the first well not the first uh, blacklist, but it, it's the second, and it has a lot of titles people would probably recognize. So on the 2006 blacklist, um, 40 of the 87 on the list were put into production between then and now. So on you have 310 to Yuma, uh, the remake that James Mangold made, 500 Days of Summer, which was the, the Mark Webb romantic comedy, Brothers Bloom, which was uh, Ryan Johnson's second film, uh, you have the bucket list, which was that Jack Nicholson, Morgan Freeman uh, movie about them dying and putting their affairs in order. You have uh, the men who stare at goats, <laughs> which was about, you know, CIA um, mind psychic experiments. Uh, Frost Nixon, which was about the famous interview between uh, the, the TV host, uh, frost and the president nixon that was a great movie i really liked that one it was a good movie yeah uh in bruges by martin mcdonough's first another really good one yeah um you also have here scott pilgrim versus the world Hmm. uh she's out of my league which was the jay bershaw comedy uh seven pounds which was that terrible will smith movie where he's (laughs) I, I can't I I honestly can't remember what seven pounds was about I remember having to endure it in the cinema though so I mean that gives you an idea of yeah. of of some of the the blacklist entries uh and again some of them get made some of them don't so they pr- recently released the 2022 blacklist and we have how do you know how many entries there were I I didn't stop and count I didn't count I think over 20 probably 20 or 30. Oh yeah, there's 74. I just wrote okay, the article. Wrong. 74. <laughs> but um, don't ask me. We, we look through them all, and we each drew three of our favorites. So, Tim, why don't you start us off with your number one? Yeah, number one that I'd be most interested to see, just based on the logline description of it. Um, it was called "Dying for You," or it's actually called "Dying for You," Travis Braun, mm. um, and it's. The logline says, a low-level worker on a spaceship 
run by a dark god, must steal the most powerful weapon in the universe to save his workplace crush. Mm-hmm. So to me, that could go in a lot of different directions. It strikes me as sort of like a YA premise, maybe, but mm. could go into comedy, dark comedy. Um, and, and what, you know, when I'm reading that, I'm thinking of like, who would I cast in those parts? And I was thinking like low level worker. At first I was thinking in a, like a comedic sense, but then I was thinking more in a YA sense uh, after I thinking about it some more. And I thought maybe like Finn Wolfhard, mm. he's a the Canadian. I like his last name Wolfhard and he, he would fit well in uh, in a reverent YA fantasy comedy. Mm-hmm. Cause he's done a lot of that with like stranger things. He's the lead in stranger things. He's been in the Stephen King it movies. Mm-hmm. He's still really young in his early twenties. So I could see him being a low, low level worker. And then who would I put as the dark God? <laughs> I had Paul Giamatti as the dark God. <laughs> Cause I think he's a perfect combination of intelligence and repulsiveness. <laughs> and so I think, I think he'd be great in that role. And that's where you could have some fun. Right. And I think a lot of these projects, they don't have enough fun with the casting, you know, mm-hmm. like you think mm-hmm. of like, one of my favorite superhero movies is the original Iron Man. And when they cast Robert Downey Jr. for that, it was mm-hmm. kind of controversial at the time. It's like, why? Oh, yeah. I Robert Downey Jr. And I think it just works so well. Mm-hmm. And then for the workplace crush, I wasn't sure, but I picked either Jenna Ortega or Haley Steinfeld. Oh, yeah. I, I yeah. just felt like somebody with some energy, humor. There's musicality Haley Steinfeld has from the Pitch Perfect films. Um, yeah, just somebody who, you know, the, uh, low level worker would have a crush on and would really liven up the workplace. Um, mm-hmm. so I think it'd be cool. It could be like office space meets, you know, sort of a sci-fi, mm-hmm. uh, YA kind of premise, fantasy premise. So mm-hmm. I'd be interested to, to learn more about that. And uh, the screenplays for these, a lot of them, I think are available online, mm-hmm. um, but I'm just doing this based on the log line, but I, I really right. think that one, and it had 18 mentions it said. So that's, it was one of the higher up ones. Yeah. Yeah. One of the higher up ones. It, it's based on over 300 executives, I believe, mm-hmm. but 18 is a lot. Cause there seems to be a lot of divided opinion, but yeah. Dying for you, Travis Braun title yeah, may change, but it looks pretty <laughs> interesting. Title may change. Yeah. They, they <laughs> don't always don't make it a screen with the, the same title, but, um, yeah, that's also one of those ones because that was sort of on my finalist list uh, for my picks. It, it just it's it's one of those things where I'd have to you'd have to be super careful about the director because that, I, my feeling is and having not read the screenplay is that it's probably one of those things where you have to manage the tone um, where if you misread the tone of the script, it could go horribly wrong. So yeah, uh, you might need like somebody like an Edgar Wright who manages to find that right mix of you know action and horror and 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 funny so just a yeah, for sure yeah i think yeah it's hard to that's one you really have to read i think most of these you really have to read to know what what they're going for yeah it's I tough think, in one sentence or two sentences to describe that yeah i might i might have one on my list later that's that might be in a similar vein um but my first pick though is white mountains uh, and it's a screenplay by Becky Lee and Mario Kairianu. And the logline is, 
After an interracial couple in the 1960s have a horrifying encounter with a UFO, they set out to discover if it actually happened or if it is just a case of a fully adieu, madness for two. Based on the true story of Barney and Betty Hill, and if you are uh, a fan of any sort of UFO uh, lore, you will probably recognize those names. They were a couple who uh, who were widely considered the first alien abductees um, in the 1960s, and it's all the more notable that they are an interracial couple. Barney Hill was black, uh, Betty Hill was white. And uh, they're just driving around New Hampshire one night and they're plucked from their car and uh, the, the sordid business of alien abduction occurs and they return to their car afterwards. And they, they really were the first people to talk openly about this experience. Um, so, I mean, there are a lot of really w- different angles about this. Like it could be more focused on, you know, this older couple who uh, are in an interracial relationship at a time of of such great racial upheaval in the United States. We're talking about a, you know, they would have gotten together at a time when uh, black people and white people were barred by law in many places from marrying. So there's that angle too. There's obviously the sci-fi angle with uh, UFOs. There's um, an angle about, you know, what is truth? Um, You know, did this, is this a thing that really happened to them? What if, if it isn't, what did really happen to them? Um, this sort of like fog of <laughs> fog of reality, I guess. So, um, and then on top of it all, it could be the you know the twenty twenties equivalent of Fire in the Sky, which I I is a movie that came out in nineteen ninety something ninety two, I think, which was also about an alien abduction, and a lot of people probably remember it for the kind of shocking and gross alien abduction scenes which aren't actually shown until the end of the movie most of the movie is about uh this guy who's played by uh db sweeney who's taken um by the by or goes missing taken by aliens if you believe the the full story or just missing for a couple of days if you don't want to render judgment and then he comes back and um quite mysteriously and and it's about the impact on his life and his relationships. I bought Fire in the Sky from Shout Factory last year. Got a chance to rewatch it, and it, it's it really is an interesting movie um, and a really well made drama that I think probably got caught up in the salaciousness of the whole alien alien abduction phenomenon in the nineties. So White Mountains could be that for the twenty twenties. I guess we'll see. Awesome. Yeah, that would. That that's an interesting premise for sure. I, I think, um, yeah, that's a really good choice. I wonder, and with these, it's how long do they take to get to pr- produce? Like you mentioned, two thousand six. There's so many great titles, yeah. um, but they're not all getting produced in two thousand six. So, well, to give people an an idea, Dracula Untold, which came out in twenty fourteen, was on the two thousand six blacklist. So it's <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a process. Yeah. All right, uh, what's your number two, Tim? My number two, and I realized the way I wrote this, I called the first title Dying for You, Travis Braun, but it's Dying for You by Travis Braun, it's the uh. writer. So my second title, Sang Fua by Michael Basha. And Logline says, after a botched delivery of fresh blood, a world-weary vampire and a pregnant nurse team up to rob a hospital of their supply. <laughs> so yeah, I think this could be you know, darkly comedic, but it could also just be dark. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's an interesting premise. Reminds me of like Gus Van Zandt's drugstore cowboy, where mm-hmm. they're uh, robbing drugstores. Um, but this with more of a supernatural vampire bent to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I looked, I just Googled Sangfoi Michael Basha, and it looks like the gentleman who wrote the screenplay did like a one minute trailer. Um, <laughs> but it has nothing to do, it's just hit clips from movies he likes. It's so a sizzle it, reel, yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of it's kind of kind of fun because it shows that, you know, he's not like you said, these are unproduced works, right? These are mm-hmm. like dream projects. So in his one minute reel, there's a lot of Ryan Gosling from Drive. Nice. And Robert Pattison from the Safety Brothers Good Time. Nice. Um, okay. So those those could be obvious choices for the world weary vampire. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking uh, from the film we're about to review later, After Sun, Paul Mas- Mescal. Oh, yeah. Could be good as a world-weary vampire. <laughs> and it would have him stretch a little bit more because I've seen him now in Lost Daughter and After Sun where he's no great, great acting, uh, but very realistic um, stories. Um, so this would be a little more fantastical. So I think he would be good in that. And with my uh, crazy casting mind here, I was thinking pregnant nurse Quinta Brunson from Mm -hmm. Abbott Elementary. Mm -hmm. Um, That'd Mm -hmm. be a good film role for her. But uh, I think with this one, like it made you laugh when I mentioned the log line, just like the other one. So I think there is some comedy to it, but I like that it comes across dark as well. So without Mm -hmm. reading the screenplay, it'd be nice to, you know, not just not just a silly comedy, but also not something that's just so dreary that like, why am I watching this? Something in between. Cause that's like life, right? There's comedy, there's drama, there's violence, there's conflict. So uh, I look forward to seeing this. And I like the title sang foie. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully it would keep that title. I have a feeling it wouldn't in Hollywood. <laughs> They'd be like, what does that mean? Where, you know, like, <laughs> Why don't you just call it cold blood or like, Oh yeah, that's, that's totally what it would be called. You're right. Yeah. But I, I like that. I think it gives it a little more allure when it's got a, got a French title. So sang foie by Michael Basha. It also had 18 mentions. Uh, I'd be interested in seeing that one. Well, having a French title is certainly working for Joker part two. Um, yeah, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that would be interesting. You can kind of get the Coen Brothers vibe after that. Uh, uh, you know, you can see it as like a Miller's Crossing thing. You can also kind of see it as a as a Raising Arizona thing too. It, it could be dark and cold, or you know, kind of silly with banjo soundtrack or something. It <laughs> it could go it could go either way. Um, speaking of going multiple ways, my next pick is Viva Mexico, written by Miguel uh Flateau. He's from Mexico originally, so um he knows of what he's writing. Uh the log line is when a washed up superhero gets betrayed by the Mexican government, he must lead a populist social movement to fight the narcos, topple the government, and free the people. Um and this has struck me as you know, it could be really the a, a perfect anecdote or antidote for uh, our current superhero malaise. Um, we had the announcement of the the newly reorganized DC universe this week, and boy, was I not interested in any of it. Um, but it 
it is uh it is funny to, to sort of see the log line for this movie and it could be taken a number of ways it could be taken as kind of like silly and uh kind of a send-up of superhero movies or it could be like a serious commentary because you know a lot of a lot of the the subtext of superhero movies is like you have these extra government actors who have and it, it doesn't mention in the log line if, if this is a superhero with superpowers or if he's just a guy in a mask or something but you know what would it look like if like a, a superman decided to overthrow a government um you yeah. know <laughs> what if he's just like i'm fed up with the bs like he lives somewhere it's like sort of openly corrupt and um like like mexico and just like you know what you're out of here i'm gonna beat up all the drug dealers and all the bad guys and get rid of all the like what are they gonna do they're gonna stop me probably not so it no, i mean it you're could a superhero be, I mean, it could be a very interesting film. Yeah, it could be something for Robert Rodriguez. I'm thinking, you know, it could mm-hmm. be, you know, uh, if it's effects heavy, it it could also be, um, you know, if they wanted to go like full prestige, get one of the the three amigos. It could be a Del Toro joint. It could be a, mm-hmm. a Caron joint, an Iritu. It you know, so there are a number of different directions that this could be taken in. Uh, I guess it depends on what exactly is in the screenplay. If it's like a Nacho Libre thing where it's like somebody in a luchador mask who, you know, cap- captures purse snatchers. But I, it, it does feel <laughs> like there's, there's kind of more, as implied in the title, that, you know, it's, uh, you know, maybe he's like a, a government agent with superpowers that is um, betrayed and then decides to lead a revolution. So, I don't know. It it could be interesting, and it could be just the thing we're we're looking for in, in the middle of all this superhero malaise. So, um, yeah. I'm putting some money on the on Viva Mexico. It's a great choice, Adam, because my number three choice is Viva Mexico. Oh no way! By Miguel Flateau. Um, yeah, <laughs> I was interested too to see where it would go. Uh, you know, it 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 did strike me kind of comedic in the way it's written. So I was thinking, okay, is this going to go in a Nacho Libre mm-hmm. way? But it, like you said, it could breathe fresh life into the superhero genre. And yeah, these superheroes they have so much power and in these universes they're you know fighting each other fighting these villains but look at all the villainy that's in politics and government right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. It, it would be a good place for them to focus their powers is um taking over a corrupt government so i think that would be interesting you could cross you know the uh, superhero genre with more of a crime genre as well and uh you know like narcos meets uh meets batman kind of thing um (laughs) so i I think that would i I would really be interested in that when i first read it as sort of comedic i was thinking of like uh, pedro pascal from the nicholas cage movie Um, yeah yeah yeah. but he's chilean so then i looked up who's a mexican diego luna who has done a lot of work in star wars yeah and so that that could be right up his alley and i like your suggestions for a really strong director to take the helm and that way it can have those comedic elements but still tell a strong story and and yeah breathe fresh life into the superhero genre um yeah put new moral emphasis on the superheroes too and helping society that'd be that'd be interesting to watch Mm -hmm. yeah no i think it's a really strong uh premise and again a lot of it's all going to depend on like what's the tone it could be very much like nacho libre and 
be like stone faced jokey and uh what's the name of that director i can't remember who made napoleon dynamite anyway you know that's that's yeah. one way you could take but it, it could go in a very different very kind of more serious direct sort of humanistic way too but um for my third pick uh, i went with a bit of fantasy <clears throat> and it's one pick that comes from a writer uh our viewers will be familiar with or at least familiar with their work it's called they came from a broken world and it is by a screenwriter named Vanessa Block, who co-wrote the screenplay for Pig, uh, another Nicolas Cage joint uh, that came out a couple of years ago about a former chef who loses or doesn't lose. He, he has his prize truffle pig stolen. Uh, this is a little bit different. The log line is the year is 1955. The small town of Boone Falls has provided a local forest as refuge to aliens fleeing their war-torn planet. When Mia, a young woman dealing with the trauma of her mother's death, stumbles upon an alien woman who needs her help, a series of haunting revelations in the refugee forest leads her to an unimaginable truth. So there's a lot there. Um, but I was particularly thinking about the timing. It's, you know, the 1950s. It's the height of the Red Scare. It's the height of uh, or the beginning of the UFO phenomenon. It's like 10 years after Roswell and, and all of that. Um, you get this really interesting angle with the aliens uh refugees um you can bring in themes of racism 1955 notably is the same year as board versus brown, uh, brown versus board of education in the united states um you know there's uh, a lot of kind of district nine vibes coming from that and um also i think a bit of iron giant vibes um because of the timing and everything and you can also probably do this as a bit of folk horror as well. You can sort of give this to Ari Aster and you know to have kind of like a, maybe a witch vibe or even M. Night Shyamalan. Because um, I'm thinking about the village as well. This whole thing about don't go into the forest, although there there is a twist to that in the Shyamalan movie. But there, you know, there, there are a number of really interesting directions you can take with it uh, in terms of like the social um, allegories. Or just like theme and and atmosphere, and uh, I mean, it would also probably depend on who you could cast um, as as the young woman, um, uh, and and also what the aliens look like. Or is it somebody who's going to wear like weird ears and a fake brow, or is it going to be like maybe some kind of motion capture creature like the the prawns in in District Nine? And you know, there, there are a number of different ways you can look at this too. Um, in, in terms of the look uh, and, 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 you know, this is one of those things where I think it's going to be catnip for any director who wants to take it on. Um, Cause th there are so many, it, it seems like there are a lot of artistic opportunities to it. Um, great opportunities for creature design. And, and it, it sounds like it's, it's multifaceted too. It's dealing with personal trauma, intergalactic. Trauma. <laughs> so <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, I would love to see They Came From a Broken World um, by Vanessa Block, who uh, also co-wrote Pig, which I love. <laughs> yeah, that's a great title, too. I like They Came From a Broken World. And mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, yeah, with the design for the monsters, when you're talking District 9, that was mm -hmm. so cool and just so different. So it'd be, yeah, a lot will come into the visual design of the piece for sure. Mm -hmm. Um I wasn't a huge fan of pig though, but we'll uh, leave that for another day. 
Okay. <laughs> I like the pig. <laughs> the pig was fine. In I like the pig. <laughs> the pig was fine. Yeah. Uh, I did write down a couple of honorable mentions. And since since we had one murder, there was some crossover. Uh, I like the the concept for Americano. Uh, it, the logline is an everyday guy who accidentally starts working as a barista inside CIA headquarters gets lured into a spy mission by a beautiful secret agent known only to him known to him only as Carl Caramel Macchiato. That's <laughs> <laughs> that could be like a men who stare at goats territory. Yeah. Um there's Oh the Humanity, which is about the Hindenburg. It sounds like kind of like a, a Cohen Brothers movie about the Hindenburg, if I can find the log line. I'm I'm just sort of scrolling on the thing here. I may have to wrap up uh i don't see it right away but there's also it's a wonderful story which was about the making of it's a wonderful life and how um it helped frank capra and jimmy stewart um you know recover from the being abroad during world war ii that's i mean that's an interesting story i'm I'm not sure that would be um especially great because i don't you know sometimes movies about movies aren't you know seem better on paper but mm-hmm. um it, it could be interesting um but anyway and the article too it's uh, the article from vulture that we read it it they talk a lot about biopics so those are mm-hmm. the ones that maybe will be have a fast track to production yeah interesting that neither one of us picked a biopic uh, i'm kind of biopicked out in a lot of senses but like yeah. Dolly Parton biopic, perhaps uh, Britney Spears biopic. So yeah, those were are... interesting. Like I, I, if I were to choose one, I would probably go with the Dumb Blonde, which is the Dolly Parton biopic. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I, I think you're right about the whole biopic phenomenon because a lot of biopics now also have like the involvement of the people in the story, like a relative or like surviving bandmates, and I and I do wonder if that has an effect on how hard you can go at the person's story when you have, you know, people who are intimately involved. But again, that's, that's a topic for another day. Yeah. And the one that had the most mentions was court 17, which is like a time loop about a female tennis player. Who's like professional, but not at the highest level playing highest level seed at the U S open round one on the same court over and over again, but she can't win. Mm-hmm. and i just watched groundhog day again for like the 30th <laughs> anniversary and that movie gets better and better every time but you can see like it was such a forerunner and mm-hmm. now there's some good ones like palm springs and others that have come out but for sure i don't like I, it, it's tough. i think it's gonna get tired after a while and that's the one that's most popular amongst the uh, executives was a, another time loop uh film uh, that's so. that's that's a tough type of movie because for every groundhog day or palm springs you, there's there's one that doesn't quite click. But anyway, um, we are going to still deal with a biopic, though, because After Sun may be essentially a biopic, although it is a drama. We're going to dig into all of that after the break. You are listening to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. Oh 
You don't mind, do you mate? No bother. Right, last one for now then, okay? Do you want a game of doubles? Yeah, sure. Got a built-in rest there. <laughs> no danger. I'm right-handed and I'm playing with a kid, right? Go easy. Do you want a break or...? Yeah. Good. Well done. So what's your sister's name? Uh, Sophie. Alright, nice. I'm her dad though, actually. Oh, sorry mate, I just thought... That's I... okay. <laughs> and that was a clip from After Sun. It's the new film from writer and director Charlotte Wells, and it stars Paul Mescal, Frankie Corio, and Celia Ralston-Hall. And uh, some of the plaudits for this movie, I gotta say, um, A.O. Scott... The New York Times film critic said, and I quote, mm -hmm. uh, astonishing and devastating, very nearly reinventing the language of film, unlocking the medium's often dormant potential to disclose inner worlds of consciousness and feeling. Now, I like this wow. movie. I like this movie, but yeah. uh, I'm not willing to... <laughs> I'm not willing to say <laughs> it, it reinvented the wheel. Uh, but Tim, what do you have to say about After Sun? Um, yeah, I'm not as effusive in my praise as A.O. <laughs> Scott, but I did, it did, uh, I really, really enjoyed the film, especially as it, it moved on. And once, once it got closer to the ending, mm. um, I really enjoyed it because what it does, yeah, that's different than most any movies you watch is it just, what it's revealing is just the emotional core of the characters as it goes on. Mm -hmm. And just through little snippets, little actions, you're waiting at the start. I was waiting for something big to happen. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, no, this is just, they're just going to re reveal about the father and the daughter and you know what the tensions are underneath the surface as it goes on and, and what the father's dealing with depression, the daughter is it's coming of age for her too, but she's kind of, she, she's trying to connect with a father who's, you know, his, her parents are divorced and she's coming to terms with that, but nothing's ever really spelled out in the movie. Yeah. Right. Like I was reading the Wikipedia page and I'm like, wow, I'm learning about the movie <laughs> on the Wikipedia page <laughs> that it takes place in the year, uh, in the early two thousands. I thought, yeah, I was close. I thought it was like the very late nineties, like 1999 or something giving yeah. the soundtrack brand fan uh, 3000 puts a stamp on it yeah yeah <laughs> and and what ao scott it, it reminds me i think there's effusive praise for another film that we reviewed that i really liked at the time but then i'm like i haven't thought of it a lot since but i could go back to it and that's the lost daughter mm -hmm. uh, directed by maggie gyllenhaal because i think it's very similar to this um, Paul Mescal was in that too. Yeah, Paul Mescal was in it, so it makes me think of it. That was his, I think, his film debut or one of them, mm -hmm. one of his really early films. And it's just both female directors, both their debuts, and mm. really focused 
sort of like yeah on the inner emotions of the character so there's a fair bit of dialogue in this but it's not overdone and there's a lot of silent moments and so the story basically is a father brings his daughter to like on vacation to like it seems like a resort and they're you know at the swimming pool enjoying a good time and the in the sun fun fun in the sun but there's all these mysterious aspects like the father has looks like a broken arm and yeah. you're like why does he have a broken arm um you know how's the mother connected to this although it, it becomes obvious that they're divorced and he's taking the daughter to have some alone time and it, with his only daughter and i think what makes it really really strong emotionally too is that it comes across like she is an only daughter. Mm-hmm. There aren't siblings. So it's not becoming a, it's not getting disjointed with all these other characters. It's really focused in on this father and daughter and their relationship and the small moments that mean so much more than at first glance. So mm-hmm. I think that's where it's, yeah, it's sort of a new language of film. Although I'm sure if you look back in film history, there's probably other examples, but really sort of, yeah, it, as as it as the film goes on, it grows, and you see more about the emotions of the characters. Mm-hmm. And th- there's a few actions here and there, but it's not like you're waiting for something. You're like, "How did he break his arm? Is something going <laughs> to happen here?" You know? I think he takes the cast off at one point too. Yeah, takes it off. So it 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 really defies expectations for someone who's thinking, okay. Is he in trouble? Was he have gambling debts? Is somebody going to come break his arm or something? Yeah, it's not there. It's just really, it, it's really this, you know, the memories of the daughter and the screenwriter, Charlotte Wells says it's, it's autobiographical mm-hmm. based on a vacation she went on with her father mm-hmm. and how she was became estranged from him after the divorce. So, um, yeah, yeah. And, and like it and it also on the wikipedia page it says it takes place in turkey i mm. didn't even know that until i saw the bus near <laughs> yeah, the end that said that's turkey right. tours or whatever <laughs> so it, it 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 makes you just sort of go with it which i think is really cool and doesn't explain over explain anything mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's it feels so kind of improvised and authentic too although i don't think there was much in the way of improvisation it, but it, yeah the this is not a movie about big things. Um, this is a movie uh, about memories and it sets that up at the beginning when you, the, when, when you're over the, the opening credits and you hear like the, the camera rewind and fast forward and all making all the camera noises that you know, <laughs> I think young people seeing this probably wouldn't be familiar with like the clunky camcorders with all these yeah. mechanized bits. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a mini DV to... camera, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it yeah. opens with you know watching these these whole movies essentially, and then it gets right into the movie um, with them starting their vacation. And yeah, you're never given any detailed information uh, except you know their names and their relationship. But everything you kind of pick up is in the corner of the screen. And you know Charlotte Wells does these funky bits where. Um, you're supposed to be paying attention to something going on in the foreground, but the real action is happening in the background. And um, 
it, you know, it's it, that's how you pick up sort of like these details that goes along. I mean, these pans of their hotel room where you see all these self-help books piled up or mm-hmm. um, the Tai Chi he's doing. You never see exactly what he's doing. Um, it only you only kind of picked up later when uh, the little girl Sophie's on the phone with her mom and she's like, oh, like, like dad's doing his ninja moves or something. It's like, oh, he's doing like these Tai Chi kind of exercises. Um, so he's he's definitely like in a self-help mode um there's a voyeuristic aspect to the film as well that you know makes you think you're kind of spying on them at this resort yeah (laughs) um there's a really great scene in their hotel room where sophie's filming um callum the dad and he tells her to shut the and you're you're watching it on the tv she has the camera hooked up to the tv so she can see what she's filming and he says he asks her to shut the camera off, and she does. But the shot stays on the TV, and you're watching the scene continue in the reflection of the TV. Mm-hmm. And it's just so you're you're not exactly getting a clear picture of how they're interacting. You're hearing them talk to each other, but so much of this is just you're you're trying to make sense of what's going on, what's going on between them, what's going on with Callum um his his sort of behaviors and mannerisms there's this really shocking scene where you see him walk in front of a bus he doesn't look both ways before he's crossing the street he walks in front of the bus the bus stops just short of him and then you go back to sophie and she's at the arcade and this other boy comes up and and he's like oh you're not playing the game and she's like i'm waiting for my dad to come back with some change and you're just like (laughs) you almost got (laughs) run over by a bus yeah yeah, like he has a really depressed, really seems very depressed. And, and like you can explain that away to say, oh, he's divorced. And mm. it comes up when she asks, uh, she asks him, when you were my age, what did you want to become? And that's when he yeah. shouts at her to turn the camera off. Yeah, that's right. And it comes out about how he doesn't have a lot of money. Uh, yeah, the daughter ends up getting, uh, Sophie ends up getting like a pass near the end of their stay mm-hmm. from somebody who's leaving where she can have full access to everything at the resort. She didn't have that before. Um, you just see these little moments, right? Yeah. And um, Callum, yeah, like when he's debating buying that expensive rug mm-hmm. and with, with his daughter, he's like, no, I, I, I can't get that. And then he comes back later and he gets and buys it, it and buys it. Yeah. And you wonder like, you know, how impulsive has he been? There's a recurring dreamlike scene in the, it's like a rave where he's dancing. Yeah. And Sophie grown up sees, is seeing him there at the flashing strobe lights dancing. And she's going to confront, confront him there as a grown up. And you can see that there's more underneath this. That isn't really totally explained, but there's just these little moments. Like they're out on the, water at one point and sophie uh admits that she just kissed a boy the night before and he's like just a peck on the cheek and she's like no more than that and (laughs) and he's like oh you can tell me anything you know i've done everything i've done all the drugs i've done all this so (laughs) like he can you just get those moments right and just little snippets of dialogue or or little little bits of action here and there where you, you can see you know especially the character of Callum and, and the daughter as well, but like Callum, like he's, 
so depressed, right? Like you're saying in front of the bus, it's like he doesn't care. Yeah. And when he walks away, picks up like a cigarette butt off the ground at one point and smokes it. He's just like, he's just, he's about to just spiral out of control. It seems like any minute. And there seems to be like anger, like when he yells at her to shut off the camera and stuff, there seems to be anger underneath and he's trying to control that. Yeah. And they show the TV screen and the self-help books are next to the TV screen with the Tai Chi and how to meditate books. Um, So you just get little glimpses in, into his character, but by the end, it, it it comes across so strongly. And so then I think the buildup, the payoff makes sense. Like when he's alone in his room crying um, mm. back to the camera, it mm. pays off because you can understand that he's going through a lot emotionally. Um, where if that had happened earlier, w- wouldn't have made much sense. Right. And, and there's that dissolve yeah. too, from that scene where he's crying alone at night and, and you, you stop and wonder like, is this immediately after this scene where he is at, um, they're doing this tour of old Turkish archaeological sites and, and he's standing on the ridge and everyone else is below and Sophie's gotten everyone else on the tour to sing, you know, sing him happy birthday or, or he's a jolly good fellow or one of those songs. And he's just kind of standing on the ridge looking down and he's in shadow because the sun's behind him. And and then it, it slowly dissolves into that scene where he's sitting on the edge of the bed and it's clearly like several hours later because it's night and he's just bawling. Yeah. And, you know, it, it feels like it feels like the two scenes are connected, although they're not because um, we go back to this whole other, like they're having this night, they're going at that karaoke night and um, she wants them to get up and sing a song and he doesn't want to get up and sing a song. Um, you know, th- so, so it plays with time anyway. And it, it, there, so there's this really funky thing. Like how much of this is the adult Sophie who we find out is we meet quite later in the film. I think after like an hour, of the film we we finally see it's it's sophie sort of playing with these mini dv tapes um adult sophie i should say um it makes me wonder how reliable is this narrative is it being taken from her memories as they're being prompted by her watching the tapes has she put a more positive sheen on this could be her last trip with her father it's kind of Mm -hmm. strongly implied it's not entirely certain or the last happy memories she has with her father that's strongly implied not altogether certain um there's so much about this movie it's like is it a memory is it how it happened is it a mixture of the two um has she polished this (laughs) proverbial turd of a memory has (laughs) Uh, is, is this how it happened or how she remembers it happening? It's There are so many of these kind of questions that sort of really jerks with the perspective and 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 the, I, not, not necessarily the truth, because sometimes um, when it comes to memories, how we remember them are their own truth. But, you know, just, you know, is it is, is this the narrative? Um is this as close to how it happened as she's remembering it? Or is, is she trying to understand how all of this unfolded um, in this interaction? Those are some interesting questions too. For sure. Cause she's looking at it as an adult now. And like Charlotte Wells said, it's As-a-parent. autobiographical. Yeah. 
and she she wrote it i'd imagine fairly recently probably and it's uh yeah and it, it, i think she's trying to come to terms with her father and who he was and yeah, it is strongly implied at the end when we see the adult Sophie that she's been estranged from her father this whole time. Like that might've been the last trip. So mm. it's probably trying to come to terms with those fleeting moments with him back then and what, what he was like and w- what was driving him. And it's a very interesting character study because it seems like he's, manic depressive or he has some some issues because you know in the one sense he's he he refuses to sing with sophie uh losing my religion on the karaoke (laughs) and it's you can take it like you're saying you can take it a variety of ways it could be like maybe that song brings back bad memories that's from like 1990 maybe that used to Mm. sing that with his wife but Mm. maybe also he just goes through different moments like that moment he's feeling shy and doesn't want to get up there and sing where later on under pressure comes on and he's dancing like a wild man you know so um i think that character is dealing with a lot and uh, sophie is trying to come to terms with that come to terms with herself too Mm. and also the sophie character there's it's in a way a coming of age story but not like a hollywood coming of age story right like yeah it's very the way it's shot and that like i think is what ao scott's getting at is it's very you know interior and how are you feeling so he she'll kiss a boy and then it'll go on to the neck it'll cut to it quickly to another scene and it's not like it's not really dwelling on these moments but mm. they are moments and she's getting glimpses just like we're getting glimpses into their relationship, the daughter's getting glimpses into other, the older kids and what they're doing and yeah, how they're drinking and partying and that was interesting and and, and, and you know growing up and so she's getting a glimpse into that herself. Um, yeah, there's yeah. there's a lot going on and the comparison to Lost Daughter is interesting too because they're they're, they're essentially both stories about people who shouldn't be parents. <laughs> and um are have have found themselves parents just the same and and how do they cope when they sort of maybe realize internally that um they shouldn't be parents and in in lost daughter you have olivia coleman trying to guide the the dakota johnson character through those kind of revelations and and there's a lot of that going on in after sun too there's a scene where um they're playing pool callum and sophie are playing pool and a couple of boys come up and put the their their token on the table for next and sophie suggests they play you know sort of doubles and uh one of the kids says to to callum oh your your little sister's pretty good and and callum goes yeah thanks and then he he, he takes a beat and he says she's my daughter actually yeah. and it makes you like makes you think, like what's he what's he doing in that moment like what's he thinking in that moment and cuz you think the instinctual thing is like oh no she's not my sister she's my daughter yeah um that's the way i think most people um would would react but he takes that beat so what's going on in his head at that moment like yeah well he's about to turn 31 too right and he seems yes yes very and she's 11 so about that so he was 20 when when she was born Mm -hmm. um so you know there's clearly 
a lot of mixed feelings about being a parent, being a parent so young. And he's clearly trying his best. I mean, I can't imagine a a trip to a Turkish resort, even on the non-all-inclusive packages, um, is is a is a cheap. Is, you know, it's not a day trip into Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Um, but so you know, he he clearly is showing that he has great care and affinity for his daughter, and he wants to give her a good time, and he wants her to have fun. Um, but you know, there's a lot of ambivalence there too, which is, is very interesting. And again, none of this is explained. This is, you know, trying to figure this out during the movie, after the movie, talking it out like we are now. It's, it's, it's very, very sort of advanced in, in sort of how you interpret it. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think it's, it's generated a lot of, because I have heard a couple of reviews of, of After Sun that are not great. And I, I think that um, it, it's asking a lot of, of us as the viewer to sort of put the pieces together. And, you know, not everybody's built that way. You know, a lot, a lot of people just want to be passive and sit in the movie theater and have it all explained to them. And yeah. uh, this this isn't one of those movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I read recently Martin Scorsese was talking about Tar and he was mm. like it won a big award at New York Film Festival. And Martin Scorsese said, this is finally, this is a movie that doesn't explain everything. And yeah, I saw it and I, I still followed it more than I follow this one. So <laughs> I'm thinking for like the general audience, right. You know, who don't, who complain about slow movies or, mm-hmm. you know, this isn't explained that there would be probably some pushback to this, especially since it's been so well regarded and, Paul Mescal's up for best actor at the Academy Awards. So mm-hmm. it's getting a lot of attention in, in critical circles, but I could see a general audience, a lot of people going with it. And then some people maybe just saying, this is slow. What is this? Right. I don't understand <laughs> what's happening, um, but it's, it's, I think maybe it's a Scottish thing too. Cause. Um, oh, it could be, it could be. a Scottish um, thing. Yeah. Cause uh Charlotte Wells says she was inspired by Margaret Tate's Blue Black Permanent, a 1992 film mm-hmm. by a Scottish filmmaker artist. I haven't seen it, but I did recently watch a Scottish short film by Lynn Ramsey called The Swimmer mm-hmm. um, from like 2012. And it it won the BAFTA for Best Short Film. And it's very similar. It's very mysterious. And mm. the swimming's actually a component of both of them. Like a fair bit of swimming in this movie and the daughter's trying to become a better swimmer. Mm-hmm. And in that movie, it was shot in black and white. And it's just about the swimmer just swimming like in Scotland and him overhearing all this stuff happening, people conversations. And it's just so mysterious, but it affects you emotionally. Mm-hmm. And I felt like this film too, like for the longest time, I was just sort of like, okay, just flowing with it. And it wasn't affecting me. And then near the end, I'm like, it, it was starting to affect me because I could really, it really drove home like the issues of, I think issues of depression, divorce, all these issues. Um, but it doesn't take you there in a straight line. It's just through the emotional journey of the characters that you get there. Yeah. And just these little glimpses. It's like these little glimpses, which is a very interesting way of putting together the story. Well, I know that in the last week I've seen uh, two movies that take place in a resort. Uh, one is After Sun and the other is Infinity Pool. And uh, I'm not going to be going to a resort anytime soon is all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> uh, that's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. And if you want to stay connected to us, you can listen to our show again 
on our website endcreditsradioshow.com. You can download it from the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday on Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And speaking of Spotify, you can find the playlist for much of the music that you hear on the show. Just open up Spotify and search for End Credits on CFRU. You can find us on social media. We're on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show. And we're on Twitter at End Credits Radio. And Tim, where can people find you out there on the wilds of the internet? The wild, wild web. You can find me uh, uh, flashing the deadpan on social media. And yeah, let me know what you think of After Sun if you get a chance. Mm-hmm. And I'll be back here on CFRU tomorrow at 5 p.m. for news and politics on Open Sources Squelf with Scotty Hertz. In the meantime, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, or you can check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And you can stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We'll be back next Wednesday at 3 p.m. for another end credits, and we will see you then.